0: This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance of Men podcast. My name is Will Spencer. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm excited to start this series of conversations with men and men's leaders from around the world and talk to them about the transformations they've experienced and are leading. In the coming weeks, I'm going to do a brief episode explaining the Renaissance of Men in more detail. I'll explain what my goals are and my vision for this project and for men today. I may even tell you a bit of my story as well. But for now, I'm going to take a page from fiction writing and show rather than tell. And I hope this debut conversation with my first guest, Tanner Guzzi, will do just that. Tanner is an author of the book, The Appearance of Power. He's a blogger, a thought leader, a father, husband, patriarch, and, I think it's fair to say, an icon in the world of men's fashion and personal development. As he says on his website, masculine-style.com, my name is Tanner Guzzi, and I want you to dress better. And while that's true, I think you'll hear he also wants much, much more for you than just that. In this conversation, we talk about his family and their unique family culture. We talk about his growth and development into the leader he's become, the challenges and decisions he's faced along the way, what it takes to lead a good life today, and about a very special suit he wore. I hope you enjoy our talk. I sure did. Thanks again for tuning in. Let's get started. Hey Tanner, great to see you. Thanks for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm excited, man.
1: Awesome. You know, first I just want to note that in a couple days, three, four days, you're going to be giving the keynote address at the 21 convention, which is pretty, excited. I want, pretty exciting. I wonder if you want to say something about that.
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. The 21 convention is something I've been involved with now since, man, 2016. So this is my fifth year going out. Wow. And it's been really fun to see how it's evolved. And especially since Anthony last year introduced the whole patriarch addiction, uh, addition, not addiction. (laughs) I like that too. (laughs) Addition, right? But how it's geared more towards family men and building a legacy, being intentional about being a father, being a husband, all this kind of stuff. And so I'm very very flattered that he asked me in a keynote. I'm excited to be able to be talking about what that looks like for me and what I'm aspiring to have it be even more so. So it's going to be, it's going to be a good weekend. I'm excited about it.
1: Cool. Can you give a little sneak preview of what your talk is going to be about?
2: Sure. I'm talking about aspirational fatherhood. How essentially if you want your, if you want your women to grow, your daughters to grow up to marry good men, and you want your sons to grow up to be good men, you have an obligation to make masculinity and fatherhood aspirational, something that they want to become or want to marry as opposed to which a lot of dads do, which is just kind of relaxing and giving up. And when, you know, I can just kind of rest on my laurels now that I've checked the major boxes and stuff like that. And we have an obligation to continue to push and build and grow. So that, it'll be hitting a lot on that.
1: That's great. And did I see that the, the guzzies are talking on Sunday? Is that going to be you and your wife?
2: Yeah, my wife is coming in this time, and she and I are doing a Q&A, which is going to be a lot of fun. So it's just an open, open question and answer session for anybody to kind of hit us with anything they want to.
1: That's really fantastic.
2: Yeah, I'm excited. She's come out before, and she was mostly there to snap photos for me and stuff like that. But she's met a lot of the speakers, met Anthony, and... Yeah, now we get to come out and do it as a couple, which is going to be a lot of fun.
1: That's really exciting. Is that the first couple that's given a talk at the 21 convention?
2: Man, probably. That's wow. uh, that's a good question. Uh, we'll have to find out, but I think so.
1: You know, that's really funny. I've got a bunch of questions here for you, but you did something on your Instagram a few days ago that I thought was really interesting. You posted a question about the best parts of fatherhood and your Mm -hmm. Instagram story. And you had a lot of really great responses to that. And I just, I, you know, I I saw those responses and I wanted to ask you, what was that like for you? How did you feel reading those, reading those responses?
2: Man, that was, that was such an energy boost for me to be able to read those because Obviously, I've cultivated an audience of men who are like-minded, and they take fatherhood seriously, and it's something that they do see as aspirational and enjoyable and that kind of stuff, but to really see the similarities of men who get it, who talk about the same benefits that I derive from it, the same things that I love about it, as opposed to A lot of the stuff that we're kind of pitched at with with normie culture (laughs) about, you know, what it is to be a dad and why it's great and all that kind of stuff. And none of those things are necessarily bad, but they often just hit on kind of a surface level. Mm -hmm. And so to have these men really hit on a deeper level and to realize that there is there is there are more men in the world out there that are like that than I thought was really energizing. It was fun to get to see that response.
1: Men who are inspired by fatherhood.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That they see it as not only a responsibility to have to live up to, but because it's a responsibility to have to live up to, it's also a great blessing and a privilege to be able to get to live up to it as well as opposed to this, I'm a workhorse or, you know, I'm obligatory and all this kind of stuff and I just wish that I could go back to being single again and I'm one bad one bad episode away from my midlife crisis. And I didn't sign up for any of this. And that's, that's not the impression that I've gotten from any of these men.
1: That's fantastic. And and I, I think, I, yeah, I mean, it was, it's, I'm not a father myself. Um, I was going to be a stepfather at one point in time, but I, mm-hmm. and that was a very meaningful experience, but I feel a really strong call to fatherhood. And my original ticket was to the patriarchs event back in May, which was now uh, the 21Con uh, Patriarchs event, which pushed to today or this mm-hmm. weekend with the regular one. And I think you described something really interesting and I'm just going to go totally off script because this is, a, do. this is a fascinating subject for me. So I think when you describe the, the typical portrayal of, of how men seem to be when they reach fatherhood is that they slow down. And what you seem to be describing is actually no fatherhood means you have to find another gear. You know, Mm you're going to give up on yourself or your dreams or your aspiration or your own development just because you're responsible for a family now. So just talk a little bit about that, because that seems to be what you're cultivating.
2: Yeah. And it's one of those things that uh, Zach Small, who's also one of the he was chief patriarch last year. He and I have both hit on this really well. um, And it's fun to kind of bounce this idea off of each other. But we both have found that that for a lot of men, they are kind of going through their trajectory of their lives and they find that becoming a husband, becoming a father, is either something that like throws the brakes on Mm -hmm. of their ambitions, their aspirations, their energy, their everything else, or like the two of us, it becomes rocket fuel. It Mm -hmm. becomes an even bigger boost. And I would be, I would be a bum if I weren't a dad because my level of, comfort my threshold for comfort is really pretty easy you know like I would be fine working a nine to five making 40,000 a year playing video games you know just kind of doing all that like I would I would have been totally fine with that and I would have I would have been the same person at 36 now that I was when I was 23 And for me getting married and being in a relationship that is very traditional where my wife does look to me as the head of the household Mm -hmm. and the onus of responsibility to make good decisions for the family falls to me like the buck stops with me. Mm -hmm. And to look at my role is not just being here to like keep my kids alive, but to set an example and to build a, a family culture and to do all this, all of that pressure made me kind of go, crap, I got to level up. And then you go, sweet, I get to level up and you kind of get this little mental mindset shift and it becomes such a cool boost. And so, so many of the things that I've done over the last decade that are the things that I'm the proudest of, the things that have really defined who I am, that have killed any complacency or stagnancy are all things that came about because I took my role as a, as a patriarch seriously.
1: So what were some of those things?
2: Even things, okay, um, one of the biggest things for me was a couple of years ago I had my I had a boxing bout. I got in the ring oh, yeah. and I got the crap kicked out of me and it was awesome, but <laughs> Broke nose, side, black eye. right, it was and it was wonderful, and I'm excited to get back in again. But one of the reasons that I did that was I realized that part of my responsibility is to be able to protect. and yes, we outsource a lot of that. It's pretty easy to be able to call sure. the police or it's pretty, but what if I'm in a situation, where I don't have any of that. And we've seen that a ton this right, year. We've seen right. so many different circumstances where you realize that you can't just rely on the police. And I realized that I didn't want my first re, my first experience with violence because I didn't, I didn't fight as a kid. I didn't get in fights in high school or stuff like that. I was totally just in, you know, uh, protected against it. I was innocent about it. And I realized that as a dad, I didn't want my first real experience to be with violence to be when it mattered, to be when it counted, and I had, because I wasn't gonna be able to step up, and so I started boxing, because I wanted to get punched in the face to see how I could handle it, and I wanted to learn how to throw a punch, and I know that, you know, if you're in a situation where you have to defend your family, it's not like everybody's gonna throw their hands up, and you're gonna follow the boxing rules. But it does create some familiarity with violence, with head movement, with breathing, with all this other stuff. And then it turned into that, too. OK, well, sparring is good, but I need to do more. And mm-hmm. so I I got into the ring and it was really a, kind of a defining moment for me as far as this big paradigm shifter. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I completed a half Ironman. So it's a solid congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I was excited about it. It was a brutal race. The conditions were nuts. And it was another one of those things where I... We hammer into our kids all the time. We're guzzies and guzzies do hard things Mm -hmm. and they need to see that. That doesn't mean that being a guzzy and doing hard things stops as soon as you get to be an adult and you're in charge of your own life, Right. but they need to see and so my kids come out when my wife and I are working out in the garage and they see us lifting weights or they see me on the bike on the trainer sweating buckets and they saw the videos and and they come to different events and so they see us living this ethos of guzzies do hard things and none of that would have been on my radar or I wouldn't have had any desire to do it had I not realized that I would be a hypocrite of a father if I wasn't setting that example for my children.
1: That's really incredible. And this, this guzzies do hard things. Did you come up with that as your family motto? Was this given to you when you were growing up? Like where did this no, come this from? this is
2: something we came up with. Oh, yeah. That's, okay. And so we have four different things that we do. Guzzies do hard things, good things, kind things, and fun things.
1: Those are pretty, pretty great things.
2: Right. And it's pretty it's we feel like it's pretty well-rounded, especially because I have a tendency to take things pretty seriously and be pretty <laughs> earnest. And so the idea that. of doing fun things is is important and thrown in there. Same thing like we make a point to do kind things instead of nice things and to help our kids understand the distinction between those two. And it's one of those things where whenever any of us are struggling to do something then we can look at it. And one of those four things is going to apply. And so with my son being scared of swimming and we tackled Mm -hmm. that this year, he got good at swimming. And finally there were times when it was just like, who are we buddy? Guzzies and what do we do hard things? But then he sees the rest of us live it out. And so he has an expectation that he knows he's going to live up to, or, When we're called to do things like when we when we're supposed to go serve in our church and it's inconvenient because it's Monday night and it's summer and we don't want to go outside and clean the church building or something else like that. But who are we? Guzzies. What do we do? Good things. And so we go out and do it and it becomes this kind of self-reinforcing thing. And again, it's something that we all hold each other to. Mm -hmm. And it's become a really cool part of, of our culture as a family.
1: How many kids do you have? Four and one on the way. Wow. Okay. So Guzzies do more than, do many things. Exactly. Yeah.
2: yeah. Or even, you know, my wife's a fantastic example of this where she's delivered all four of our kids naturally, unmedicated. And the last, you know, the last one was a home birth and everything. And for her to even express that to our daughters, because we have three girls and a boy, and mm-hmm. for her to set that precedent of, yeah, it's painful and it's incredibly hard. And the experience that it provides and the way that I have been able to bond with you kids because of what I've gone through for you is infinitely better than had I just done the the standard route now of an epidural or a C section mm-hmm. or anything else. So she's very careful about not being not castigating other people who don't follow those same routes. But we always try to make aspirations attainable, desirable, and and worth shooting for for us and for our kids.
1: So your children have all been present for each other's births?
2: Uh, well, they no well, as much fact, as possible. No, right? And that that's the funny thing about the last one is. My wife was in kind of pre-labor for hours, and then as soon as my mom came and picked up the kids, then it was, then it was game on. And okay. so they've been very present as far as being able to be there very quickly thereafter. Mm-hmm. But, but even then, for them to see – for them to know what my, what my wife goes through to the extent that they can
1: mm-hmm.
2: is just another iteration of the fact that guzzies do hard things and guzzies do good things and that kind of stuff too.
1: So you're, so I'm, I have this image in my head of you guys cleaning the outside of your church on a Monday, on a Monday night. And you, it's Monday, it's summertime. It's warm outside. You, last thing you want to be doing is, you know, cleaning a church, but you say guzzies do hard things. Then you go and then you do it all all six of you, uh, Mm -hmm. six and a half, I suppose. And you're there and you're done cleaning the church and you're on your way home. Describe what it feels like in the car on the way home, having done that hard thing.
2: Oh man. I love that you asked that because the satisfaction that they have. And one of my favorite things is that when we do A breakdown of, you know, what are the hard things we did today? What are the good things that we did today? What are the fun things that we did today? 99% of the time, the hard things that we did are also the fun things Mm -hmm. that we did. And our, our kids are starting to make those connections of maybe the hard thing was learning how to ride a bike without training wheels because it was scary and it was intimidating and then they do it and then they get it. And then it's like, well, what was, what was your fun thing today? It's like, are you kidding me? I learned how to ride my bike and right. I got to go as fast as I wanted to. And it was awesome. And, or even, the the games that we'll play is we're out cleaning the church. The fact that we're doing it together as a family and it's not that my oldest is off with friends or that I'm on my phone doing work or anything else like that, but we're all present with each other as we do those things. And so, yeah, the feeling in the car as we kind of get to finish all that is – we're a family. We're a unit. We are not a separate individuals, but we are homogenous as a family, and it's the best. That's so incredible.
1: That's like so, I can I can feel in what you're saying how how meaningful that is. And you're really talking about what it means to be a patriarch. I mean, I know this word has so many negative connotations, but the space that you're creating with your family and the values and the standards standards that you're setting is really is really what's creating that with your focused, you know, I would say masculine intention to create mm-hmm. this. So this this spirit that you have in yourself, you know, that, that push us forward. Where do you think this came from? You know, because you're a man who found a new gear when you became a father and other men, you know, sort of slip back into, into habitual ways. Is this something that you've cultivated in yourself? Was this passed down to you in your values? Was, was it just like, I have a desire to live? Like what, where would you say it came from?
2: That's a good question. Um, I know it isn't something that I cultivated in myself because I have been, I'm intelligent and I'm a good talker. And so mm-hmm. I've always been able to get away with not having to do anything because I can just talk my way around it. Mm-hmm, sure. You know, like I remember, I, the probably the best example is my senior year taking AP English, you know, like the advanced placement English right. class. And I didn't read a single one of the books the entire year, uh, not one. And I was still my teacher's favorite student yeah. because when it came time to have discussions about the concepts in the books and everything, I was vocal and I could get the concepts and all that. And I was very good in that regard. And that's just kind of how my life has been. I haven't had to try very hard in a lot of things. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, obviously that's a huge blessing that Mm -hmm, I'm competent and capable socially, physically, intelligently, and in a lot of different arenas. And it's also a bit of a curse because I never really learned what it felt like the, what it really felt like and how beneficial it is to try hard at something and to kind of put it all on the line and to benefit from that. And that all came about after I started realizing the pressure of being a father and part of it, I would say it comes from my family culture of my parents trying to instill that, Mm -hmm. even though it took, you know, two decades before it finally kicked in, but my parents both value hard work and they come from families that value that to be fully honest. I think for me, what it ultimately comes down to is there is a, there's a spiritual aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I think that there's something godly about man's desire to be ambitious, to be aggressive and to be assertive. And we can either suppress that, which is what I did, or we can let it totally run free and become chaotic, which is where you Mm -hmm. get bad Machiavellian men, or Mm -hmm. we can do the godly thing, which is channel it and use it for good. And I'm really grateful that I've been given an opportunity to take what I had suppressed for a long time and was really very uncomfortable with and be provided both the arena and the desire to try and recapture it and rechannel it and do it in a good moral way.
1: That's really interesting. So I'm curious, say more about suppressed, because I think for a lot, like, was it consciously suppressed? Was it unconsciously, like not tapped into like, is a deep oil? Well, that you tapped into that exploded or was like, I need to get on my own way.
2: Yeah. I think that it's okay. So my, my son is, is very similar in this regard where from just a personality standpoint, who he is, He's he's just a tender kid. Like mm-hmm. he's the ultimate validator. He's a he's a fantastic cheerleader. He's very empathetic. He's very good at being able to make other people feel good and he's very good in a lot of ways that a lot of people 100 years ago or even 60 years ago would have said were effeminate. And now mm-hmm. a lot of people will say that that is something that will That can be misconstrued and and can lead to certain things as far as like even gender orientation or sexual orientation. Like people will start to lean stuff that way, but it's just naturally who he is. Mm -hmm. And we grow up in a culture where those kinds of behaviors are what's rewarded because it's good to be able to sit down and be quiet and to be empathetic and to be all of this. And the things about learning how to be aggressive, learning how to be assertive, learning how to be brave, learning how to do hard things, learning how to do all that that isn't necessarily pushed as much, especially if you're not actively playing sports or in one of the few kind of holdout arenas in which that's capable. And so that's how it was for me. I remember I quit playing organized sports when I got really into the BMX and the punk rock scenes Mm -hmm. and everything else. And so there was none of that environmental factor that pulled me out of, and it's not even pulled me out of, but just helped cultivate the other side. Because I do, I, I want my son to be the validator and to be empathetic and to be somebody who is socially intelligent and capable. I don't ever want to squash any of that, Mm -hmm. especially because he's so virtuous about it. What I want to do is cultivate all of these other virtues that are a little bit more of a struggle for him so that he can be the ultimate package as opposed to the empathetic weakling nerd or the barbarian jock strongman that, you know, is just socially incapable. Those the fact that we've been told for the last however many decades that those two things are mutually exclusive Mm -hmm. is absolute garbage. And I've learned that myself when I've started to develop more of this aggression and assertion and things like that, especially from falling into the manosphere and the red pill community and learning all this stuff as, as I was older and now it's become more second nature and more natural. And I want to be able to lead my son into that. And so we don't spend as much time talking with him about You know, this is how you be polite because he's naturally Mm -hmm. already there, but this is how you be brave. And this is how you be strong because he's not naturally there. And if we have another son and he's a little bulldozer, like a couple of my nephews are, Mm -hmm. then they don't need to necessarily have reinforced as much. This is how you be brave and assertive and strong, but this is how we be polite and sympathetic and those kind of things. And again, they don't have to be mutually exclusive.
1: Mm -hmm. So you're seeing a bit of yourself reflected in your son in a way you're leading him through the journey you've already been through.
2: Right. And, and wish that I would have been able to go through it when I was younger and I'm grateful that I've been able to go through it when I, when I have, and I hope that I can get him. I want my son to be better than I am. And not in the way that I'm like living vicariously through him where it's like, Oh, I screwed this up, but you're going to be better or anything else like that. But I want to give him as many tools and as much perspective so that whatever better looks like he can do that.
1: hmm you want to pass on your fatherly gifts to him. These are the gifts right. that I've learned over my years of experience, and I want to give them to you as a young man, as a growing boy. Absolutely. Yeah, I think of the the the. I think you posted on Instagram uh, as well. You were maybe deadlifting in your garage, and your your son was there. And and uh, I thought that was a really touching kind of portrayal because I do believe boys need to see that they need to see mm-hmm. their father struggling and working hard at something physical and overcoming themselves.
2: That's why we have a home gym because. Mm-hmm. My parents were both very active. They're uh, long distance runners. I, I can't count the number of marathons that I, that both of them have done. But one of the things that was hard is when I was, when I wanted to emulate that, when you're young enough and impressionable enough that you want to emulate your parents, I couldn't go run a half marathon with them. Right. I couldn't even be present to see them struggle with it or anything else like that. So exercise was this thing that they went out and did elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And then they came back and they were mom and dad. And it was not anything that I really had any vision vision in or anything else like that. And so one of the reasons that we have a home gym is so that they can see it and also they can participate in it now. My son, mm-hmm. just yesterday, he he hit 70 pounds on his deadlift and wow. he's super pumped. I right he weighs like 40 pounds and though and he hit 70. He's just he was screaming. He was so excited. And he goes in and he tells his mom and he's so pumped about it. And it's naturally there. This is not something that I'm like, well, son, we're going to go deadlift because, you know, he wants to do it. He, he, every Wednesday is deadlift day and he counts down the days until it's deadlift day. And it's just by, by doing that in a place where he can be present, by teaching him, by helping him work through the things that are hard or scary about it, it becomes this natural desire for him. And I just want to continue to cultivate that for him and for my daughters in their different arenas and, and it as much as we can.
1: That is probably one of the coolest things I've heard in a long time. How old is your son? Six. He's six. And he has, yeah. dead, he looks forward to deadlift day on Wednesdays. Awesome. Yeah. That's incredible. That's truly true. I incredible. love it.
2: It's so fun.
1: Oh man. I just, I can picture it like written in crayon on the, on the, on the refrigerator <laughs> deadlift day, Wednesday. Yep. yep. Oh my gosh. The personal records written in marker or something oh, like man. that. It's the best. So how did, when he came, when you came home from your boxing match and you had, I, cause I think I saw a picture recently, your nose was broken. You had this cut mm-hmm. on your eye. How did he react to that?
2: They just were, it was fun because all of them were a little bit worried. Sure. But the first thing was, did you win? Which is what they do. I love that they do this. Even like my wife and I will go run half marathons and did you win mom? It's like, no, not even close, but they, you know, they get excited about it. And what's fun is that they, my, my wife does a very good job of being, of being supportive and being a matriarch and being submissive in the ways that, that she's really supposed mm-hmm. to where any time that they express any sort of fear about it she will immediately flip or, flip it around and say no this is this is why this is such a good thing that dad did this mm-hmm. Because this is what it does and this is how he's setting an example for us and this is how he's leading us and this kind of stuff. And so for them to not be able to recognize me because I'd had to shave my beard off and my Mm -hmm. nose was all broken and my eyes were all swollen and everything, but for them to see that dad's willing to do that kind of stuff. I think was good for him. And especially to have it reinforced by mom was good for him.
1: Mm, I, I can, I can kind of picture that. I can kind of see that. So in this sort of, this sort of supportive role of you, and it mm-hmm. sounds like she was supportive of you doing it anyway, and that she understood that it would be good for you.
2: Oh, she's so anxious for me to get back in the ring. She wants me to do it more than I do.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and she's been like that for the majority of our marriage. I remember three and a half years ago when I came home and told her that I, was ready to, to quit my full-time job and go full-time with, with my own business. She's Mm -hmm. like, yes, please. I wish you would have done this six months ago, Wow, you know? And so for her, she's, she's a fantastic spouse and she really does set such a good example. I'm excited for you to get to meet her this weekend Mm -hmm. and be part of that Q and A and everything, Mm -hmm. because what she will, what she brings to the table and the dynamic that she offers, it's so fun to be able to see what an equal marriage looks like, but it's Mm complementary, as opposed to that we're both vying to be the same person or be in the same role or that, you know, it's this modern version of the intelligent, assertive wife with the dad who's nothing more than one of the big kids, Mm -hmm. you know, like the Homer Simpson or the Phil Dunphy or whatever else, or even the old kind of twisted version of it where she's really just a silent partner. And she's just there to be completely obedient and not offer any insight or anything else like that. And so it's just full delegation, but the balance that we've been able to create of her being complimentary and fully feminine and bringing all that to the table. We love it. We love the dynamic between us. We love what it does for our kids. It's just, it's, it's, we, we lead good lives. We're very happy
1: you grew up in sort of a traditional family with two traditional parents in the, in the, in the Mormon church. Mm -hmm. So as you're describing the situation with your, with your wife, what's your wife's name, by the way? Brickaley. Brickaley. So as you're describing the situation with the two of them, how would you say that looks like your parents? And how would you say that it doesn't look like your parents? And I have a direction that I want to go with this, a question that I want to ask you.
2: Um, That's, it's a little bit different than the situation with both of our parents. My parents they fill those roles out the best that they can. But at the same time, from a personality perspective, my dad is a little bit more easygoing and a little bit more submissive. And mm-hmm. my mom is much more assertive and much more dominant. And so in a lot of the little things, the balance is kind of shifted. Mm-hmm. And then in the major things, it, it falls out the way that it's supposed to. And they've, they've been able to make it work in a way for them that works very well. And then with my wife's parents, it's even a little bit more different where – Man, I don't even know if I could comment on all of the dynamic and everything there for them, but let's just say that for both of our families, when we first got married and they first kind of found out what the dynamic was, there was both appreciation and a little bit of hesitation that we were Mm -hmm. going to be getting into something that was my being domineering and her being just totally a doormat Mm -hmm. and that hasn't panned out that way, but there was a little bit of apprehension that it was going to be that way.
1: It probably never really was, but the language that you use to describe its you know, we're so lacking in language to describe what a healthy relationship looks mm-hmm. like that, you know, you think of like Jude and Ward Cleaver or something like that. It's like, no, right. this is a, because w- what is interesting to me is you've described a dynamic that I think has only become possible be- between men and women very recently as men and women have, have come to lose a lot. Only when you lose something, can you really appreciate what, it's, it, what it is that's been lost and then gained yeah. back again with a new appreciation for it. It. and do you think that describes you guys in a way
2: yeah definitely especially because this is one of the things that I'm planning on hitting on in my in my presentation and it's not it doesn't go very well you know it's an unpopular opinion in our kind of corner of the internet but i do think that the pure old school version of how we see patriarchy is broken in its own ways, Mm -hmm. and that's why there was such a rebellion against it. I think that when we look at the post, uh, or when we look at the World War II generation and how they were as fathers and how they were as spouses, and I certainly don't blame any of them for being the way that they were. I can't imagine going through the, the most horrific war in, mm-hmm. in history and not having it emotionally break you and spiritually break you For in sure. a lot of ways. And so these are broken men that are trying to hold on to as much goodness as they can. And a lot of them did. And I, I, will forever admire the men who did. And at the same time, I think that there's wisdom in being willing to say they did the best that they could. And that's admirable and that's noble. And that there are still things that they did wrong that we can learn from.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah mm mm-hmm. and, and also, I think it allows the women to continue to capitalize on the progress that they've made in the past 50 to 70 years. You know, I, I don't think that that can be thrown out in general as well. This idea that the, the dynamics of both men and women, men relating to women, women relating to men, men relating to themselves and each other, women related to themselves and each other, that's changed a lot. And we live in a different world than the post-World War II era. And I think we need to take advantage of that.
2: Yeah, and I think you're right that there needs to be a willingness to see it that way because even as I think about it, we're so steeped in feminism and mm-hmm. so steeped in all of the the fem empowerment and everything else like that that it's pretty easy to look at it and go, okay, what what actual benefits? Because families are broken and uh, there's so many there's so <laughs> many negatives that come from it, but it's because we are We're in the middle of the benefits that we just kind of take them for granted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are, I imagine there are things that I will never even be able to recognize and I wouldn't recognize unless I had been able to go back and grow up in a culture prior to all this stuff that I can look at and say, that's a good thing. And it wouldn't have happened had we not gone through what we've been through for the last 60 years.
1: I think there's a lot of uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater thinking that seems Mm -hmm. to exist today in kind of all possible spheres. Everyone kind of does it. It's like, oh, we need to go back to the way things were. It's like, well, no, there were some pretty bad things going on. We've made progress and we've regressed in some ways. And to make these fine distinctions between what's good and what's useful and what's not useful, I think is really valuable.
2: Well, and that's the only way I think to be able to actually do anything good because I think it's very naive to believe that the 50s were a perfect time and that all we need to do is go back to that or that the 1850s were a perfect time and we need to go back to that. And even to think that we could hold on to that. And, and right. it, it's equally naive to think that, okay, well, we've made changes, therefore changes equal progress and not all changes are progress. And so we need to be willing to be able to look at this is what should be maintained and preserved from the past and this there are real benefits to this and that should be built upon as opposed to just totally having its legs cut out from underneath it and also that it's not complete and it needs to be built upon as opposed to just totally maintained exactly the way that it was
1: oh sure like we need to look back and see you know this actually worked and it was effective and we discarded it in the in the race to progress and now we've achieved that progress and things aren't working uh, right. some things are and other things aren't so maybe we can look to the past and and try and and I think that's one of the unique things about this moment in time is that though we're culturally very divorced from the past and we live in this always on instantaneous social media, you know, five second attention span culture, but we also have access to centuries, millennia of information about ancient Mm -hmm. cultures and histories that we have the ability to really draw from and use to enrich the present. If we can step out of the the rapid flow of time, I guess you might say.
2: Yep. And be willing to do it because it's hard because it is, it's building, it's building your own culture Mm -hmm. because nobody's built this for us. Right right it's not the kind of anything that was built for us if you just try and do it the way that it was before it's a larp if you try and dress and talk and act and everything like it's the 50s you're a joke right it doesn't it doesn't work and nobody's really going to do that and there's a reason that we all kind of just shudder a little bit when we see when we see people pretending like you can just live in the past because you can't you can't have you can't have a 1950s mindset and have social media like right. they, they, they don't work just like you can't have a Victorian mindset and have penicillin and all this, you know, like it just right. doesn't yeah. work because so many of these other factors are things that played into all this kind of stuff. It's like the dorks who try and maintain the standards of chivalry right. and it's like, okay, but – ladies aren't ladies the way that they were back then and you're certainly not a knight and you're not practicing the full benefit of it of the violence and the the respect that's paid her and you're just doing the things that make you feel good as a nice guy because it's serving whatever the current agenda is or anything and so it is it's all a larp and so we do need to be able to look back at the things that are principles a little bit more kind of timeless in their application as opposed to I'm going to wear a fedora and then that's going to make me more of a gentleman or I'm going to talk a certain way or I'm going to treat my wife a certain way and that's going to make me a patriarch. It's the principles. It's the things as far as family and loyalty and men and women are different and that we are complementary in those differences. It's the idea of you have to be intentional about what it is that you're building and the intentional and fatherhood and motherhood and that kind of stuff. And there are a thousand and one different ways to do that, Mm -hmm. but that's the kind of stuff that we need to do.
1: Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're describing, Living a good life takes work. Like, hey, go figure. <laughs> yep. But it takes, it takes a sort of deep inner work because I think what you're describing, you, I remember you said a few months ago, um, you, LARPing personal development. I remember you said that and that had a little viral kind of moment, which was pretty uh-huh. cool. And I, I agree with you that there's a lot of LARPing personal development and a lot of LARPing in general. And so for the men who are listening, how do you know when you've transitioned from something being a LARP to something being authentic within yourself?
2: I think it's when you see what fruits it bears. Mm. And the other thing that's hard is that you kind of do have to LARP a little bit before it turns into Mm. something that's real. There really is something to the idea of fake it until you make it. And I would argue that you want to do it from a progressive overload perspective of, you know, and okay, one of the ways to do this is that I can talk about this well is related to clothing and appearance, because obviously Mm. that's my business and stuff like that. But there's a big difference between okay, crap, I look at my wardrobe and I realize that I dress like a child and none of my stuff looks very dignified. It doesn't look very respectable. It doesn't send any signals that I wanted to. It just looks like my mom still dresses me or that all I care about is how comfortable I am and I don't want to send those kind of signals. That doesn't mean that you steer all the way in the other direction of wearing three piece suits and fedoras and pocket squares and you have a part in your hair and everything else like that. Because that's the way that dignity and respect looked in the 50s or the 60s or anything else. That's the LARP. And Mm -hmm. maybe you have to experiment with that a little bit or you have to dress in a way that is a little bit more formal. Or maybe it's not more formal but it just looks a little bit more intentional because the fit's more dialed in or something else like that. And you can get to the point where you could still wear jeans and a T-shirt and sneakers and feel – very much like I'm sending the signals of I'm a man who's worth respecting and I have self-respect and there's dignity and there's seriousness and there's intentionality and all of these things can be conveyed. And it's because of the quality or the fit or how comfortable I am wearing them or what people are you seeing me or what my body language is or my physique or all these other variables. And so, yeah, maybe it is a little bit of one, but then when you start to see that it bears fruit and it becomes natural and it mm-hmm. becomes second nature and you get to this point of effortless mastery as opposed to putting in all this effort and barely getting any sorts of results, Mm -hmm. then that's when, that's when you get to the point where you realize you've made good decisions, but it takes a lot of time.
1: It takes a lot of effort, a
2: lot of work, a lot of, a lot of education. If you don't know how to play the piano, when you sit down at the piano, and you start plunking out keys and notes, like that's LARPing, right? You're pretending that you know how to play the piano Sure. and you're not going to be an idiot and pull out some incredibly intense Beethoven or Mozart piece and feel like, okay, I'm just going to learn how to do this. But you start with the basics and then you get better and you get better and you get better. And I think it's the same thing with all self-development and You don't tweet about, well, I'm such a good piano player now because I can play chopsticks and blah, 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 blah. Like there's humility in recognizing that I'm learning and that's awesome. You need to be ambitious. You need to be learning. But also I'm really only just learning. And that's, you know, that's how I felt about boxing where, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've stepped in the ring and I feel proud of that. I'm not a boxer. I don't qualify to be able to wear that that badge or have that title or anything at all because I suck at it still. And it's going to be years and years of development. Same thing. I'm not a triathlete. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've been able to compete and I've been able – well, compete. I've been able to complete a race, mm-hmm. but I'm not competitive in that regard. And so for me to say those things, to, to claim that that's what I am is a, is a LARP. But for me to try and do those things is not. And yeah, honestly, five, six years ago – I, I calling myself a patriarch was LARPing. Now I don't feel that way. And I don't think my wife or my kids would feel that way. I feel like I've earned that title.
1: Yeah. You don't represent as LARPing that in that either. Like you seem to embody it and you talk about it from a very deep and rich and, and grounded, grounded place. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, you know, uh, your, your, Transition to working in, in fashion earlier, how you were, yeah, you were working for someone at one time, and then you transitioned to your own style coaching business. I think you said about three years ago and your wife mm-hmm. said she wished you had done it six months earlier. So talk about, talk about that time as well, when you went from being, I, I wouldn't say maybe a follower to a leader, but when you really stepped out and said, no, I actually, I own this. This is yeah. something significant to that. I mean, that's a pretty big step for, for any man to take, to say, I've mastered this enough to the point where I can pass on this wisdom. Talk about that time time in your life or talk about that transition?
2: Well, thankfully it was something that I was already working in the industry. I'd spent four years working for a custom suit company and was already overseeing their store operations and had worked with clients. And it was all stuff that was building towards being able to be in this industry on my own. At the same time, I found that job or that job found me as a result of having written masculine style and been blogging about it. And so mm-hmm. I, I left in 2017 to, to strike out working on my own full time, but I started the blog in 2011. Mm-hmm. And so there had been a long time. In fact, in 2012 when my first daughter was born, it was the first time that I made any money off of it because we were actively deciding I was making 1295 an hour mm-hmm. and my wife and I had actively decided, that we wanted her to be able to stay home full time. And there was no way that we could do that with what my income was. And so Mm. that was when I first started trying to monetize masculine style. And so from 2012 until 2017, I had played around with different ways to be able to monetize it. And then started to see what worked and what didn't. And then at one point, it just became very apparent that as much as I loved the guys that I worked for, the two partners that ran the company that I worked for, and they're still both good friends and men that I respect and admire. And as much as I loved being in the industry and I really had caught the vision of the company and everything else like that, I needed my autonomy. Mm-hmm. I I couldn't work for somebody else and and have to be accountable to them in a way that that they fairly expected of me. I needed to be able to do that all on my own. And I realized that I was making money and I could probably make enough to be able to provide for my family if I put all of my energy and effort into it. But it was a risk. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, I took the dive and we've been very blessed that it, it's worked out. And, you know, I, I made more money the first year out on my own than I had any previous year working for anybody else. And it's just continued to grow and expand from there. So it's been a good transition. When did you
1: write the book?
2: Uh, that was... 2017. It was the end of 2017 was when that got published.
1: Mm, yeah. That book still stands out as, as one of the legends in the manosphere men's world of, of writing. I see it referenced well, I all the time. That. Well, you, have you. A, you have a really strong, oh, you're welcome. You have a really strong presence on Instagram and on, and on Twitter as well. But I, I think, I don't know that you get enough credit for being an excellent, an excellent writer because I've, I've been reviewing the book. And when I read it maybe about a year ago, it was a, instantly like a light went off in my mind and I went right out to buy just some clothing because awesome. it's like you'd given me this master key to find kind of kind of understand things a little bit. And I went back, reviewed it before the interview, and I just found, wow, this is actually really, really solid, evocative writing. In fact, I want to read a I want to read a passage to you if you, if you yeah, don't mind. Please.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Dressing well contains an element of both congruence and aspiration. It tells the world, particularly the people who matter most in your world, who you are and where you're headed. It projects honesty and ambition. I mean, that's a, that's a strong statement that resonates immediately with the core of any man who understands, wow, I understand honesty and ambition and congruence. And I can reflect that in my clothing.
2: Yeah, it, it is. It's a light bulb that goes off when you realize it. Right. I remember when it happened for me, I was just like, holy crap, this is so cool. When was that? Oh man. Okay. So it first happened when I, it happened a couple of times, but I remember for me when I was young, when I was a teenager mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I wanted to dress like a punk rock kid and I had to wear a private school uniform and I realized the dissonance as opposed to the congruence and how hard that was. And then later on, it was when I first started dressing up for my, I worked for a credit union. I was a loan Mm -hmm. officer and the, the standard expectation was you wear a shirt with a tie Mm -hmm. and I started wearing suits and just that little change for me, especially because at the time I was writing the blog and people knew that I was a little bit more ambitious and stuff like that. It was just like, Oh, this is sweet. Like I don't have to do I don't have to do what everybody else is doing, but I'm not so out of place that I look totally weird in this environment. Like, yeah, it's you don't you don't see anybody typically but a but a branch manager who's wearing a suit, but there's some credibility to this and everything else. And I remember the first time I walked in and felt that it was just like, okay, there's there's something to this, especially because What most men don't capitalize on and don't realize is it has very little to do with other people seeing that honesty and that congruence and that aspiration and more to do with the fact that you're sending those signals back to yourself and you're reinforcing Mm -hmm. that to you.
1: Mm -hmm, mm I can, I can. Picture that just in my own life, just because I've just bought a whole new wardrobe, you know, and and I can see myself when I look in the mirror. Like yesterday is a great example. You know, a lot of people are working from home, myself included. And so when Mm -hmm. you wear at home, like you don't have to dress up for work the same day, the same way you stay at home. So I, I got some comfortable but nice you know, home joggers and stuff to wear to feel better. And it's like, oh, wow, I feel very different about the way that I'm doing my work, even alone in my apartment. Like no one's seeing me. Right. It's it's awesome. And when you bought the suit for that, for that job, was that a dress for the job you want kind of thing? Or was that just like, I'll give this a shot?
2: It was more giving it a shot because I actually didn't want to move further up in the company because I knew that if I did, I would be trapped there because it's a whole lot easier to leave a job when you're making $13 an hour than it is when you're making 20 or 30 or something else. And I hated the industry Mm -hmm. and I didn't love that. That job sucked. But, and you know, that's not, that's not the right approach where it's like, I'm going to intentionally limit my capacity to make it easier to jump ship when it's time. I I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that to my son or to somebody else, but no, it was not addressed for the job you want. It was a way to exert a little bit of individuality, self-respect, and even ownership in my life because I was trapped in that job. Mm-hmm. You know, I had been through I I was when I was most actively looking for something else. This was post the 2008 recession. Mm. And so finding anything in any market was terrible. I had a worthless communications degree and I had also gone through a pretty ugly divorce in which my former wife and a bunch of her friends and family had totally ruined my online presence where if you Googled Mm -hmm. my very unique name, Mm -hmm. the only thing that you would find was awful stuff about me. And so it was next to impossible for me to find any other, any other work. And so I felt very trapped in that job. And so dressing up for me was a little bit of a recapture of, of my own dignity, my sense of hope, my, my ability to control some aspect of my work life because nothing else really felt like it was in my control.
1: What an incredible story. So you went through this awful divorce and your online presence was ruined and you're kind of, you're in the shell shock after a pretty bad breakup for anybody, let alone like a bad breakup in the way that went. And you're, and you're trapped in this kind of nowhere dead end job as the world is melting down around you economically. And you decide to put on a suit. Mm -hmm. What an incredible, what an incredible step. Like just to say to yourself, like, this is, this is who I am. And this is, I'm not going to accept these circumstances in the world or in myself.
2: Yep. Yep. It was a way to, and that was really where so much of my own self-development began. And I was never really a victim mindset before, but it made me realize that I can't control what happens to me, but I can't control how I react to that. And I know that that's a platitude and we hear that all the time in our corner, but when you recognize it for the first time, it isn't a platitude, it's a real paradigm Mm -hmm. shift. And for me, that was a major part of it.
1: Do Do you think about that often? You think, wow, that decision was really consequential?
2: No, in fact, as we've talked about this, this is, you know, right now, it's like, oh, I should, I should write about this because so much of that was subconscious that Mm -hmm. I don't think that I, I'm not making that connection until we're talking about it right now, that a lot of it was a way for me to reassert control over my own life. And that was the reason that I did it.
1: And you experienced that immediate shift in yourself and your environment. Mm hmm. Yep. And did you apply some of your knowledge about fashion and style to that decision as well? Was this like, Oh, oh totally. I, okay. And when totally. did you, when did you start? Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
2: No, I was just going to say, in fact, that first suit that I got was one that a company sent to me to review because mm. the blog had started to pick up enough momentum that I could get it. Cause I couldn't afford to buy a new suit. Mm-hmm. You know, I was dirt poor. I was still paying off divorce debt and everything else. And, and so when that, when I got that first suit, that was another reason why that was so impactful. Cause it's like, Holy crap. Like, all I do is write on the Internet and people want to send me stuff because they like the way that I write about like there's there's some real potential here. And so in a lot of ways, getting that first suit was it It was a lot of milestones at once.
1: It was like a a, a function of providence in a way. It's like mm-hmm. the circumstances and like, oh, here's this little key to your situation. If you just yep. have the ability to kind of perceive it as that. Absolutely. That's real. I mean, I can kind of see the branching, you know, if you can picture that, the branching decision trees of life where it's like, oh, I put on the suit that day or I didn't put on the suit that day and how life evolves as a result of that. Yep. hundred percent. So you mentioned also your time in the BMX kind of punk rock. Was that when you sort of discovered your interest in fashion and style? Yep. Yep.
2: Yeah. Because for me, it was, I was involved in two very disparate tribes in which appearance was everything. One was I attended a private school And you literally had to wear a uniform, gray slacks, white button up shirt, the rep tie and the navy blazer. And I, I remember in eighth grade getting suspended because I kept wearing my uniform out of regulation and I kept being indignant about it and fighting against it and everything else like that. And so I got in some trouble for that. And then at the same time, when you're in that punk rock scene, especially like the late 90s, early 2000s, and it's the Liberty Spikes and the band patches and all this other kind of stuff. If you don't look like one of them, mm-hmm. then you're a poser or a sellout or something else like that. And you're not accepted as part of this group. Yeah. And and so it was very much these these two disparate identities that very much cared about appearance. And that was the first time that, you know, like we said earlier, I felt that dissonance of, I really want to look this way because this is where I identify, but I also need to dress this way because these are the expectations that are placed on me and trying to mix and match and, and blend that or get away with this or get away with that or anything else like that. And that was when I first became very, I would say hypersensitive to the, the power of appearance and how much it matters internally and externally and everything else.
1: And you were a teenager at that time?
2: Yeah, I was 14, 15 years
1: old. So I would imagine that you tried to fuse some of the punk ethos into your, into your prep school wear. Yep. Did the prep school wear make it into the punk world at all? In no, because ways? I
2: hated it. That was all, oh, okay. that was all okay. forced on me. You know, I didn't want anything to do with any of that in the punk rock stuff. But even then, there was a big difference between, you know, you have like your sub-tribes because you get to the point where you can recognize the difference between somebody who rides a BMX bike or somebody who skates or somebody who's into like old school, like Ramones, Sex Pistols, Dead Kennedys versus somebody who's into like third wave ska style punk rock and all Mm -hmm. these little kind of like sub tribes within the main tribe. And so you're infusing and injecting all of these little things because you identify with this one way and that another way. And then, so all of that very much came there. It just never came from the private school.
1: (laughs) So you were going through this, this kind of consciously in a way, did you find, you know, you were very thoughtfully and very very intensely. Did you find that other, other people in that punk scene were going through it in the same kind of considered way, or was kind of very natural for them?
2: No, it was very much a considered thing where oh, wow. you would see them, you know, the amount of time that I would have, you know, I had friends that had these, these battle jackets that were leather and, you know, the amount of time that it would take to draw the misfit skull in whiteout and get it so that it's perfect. And that you have everything, you know, I had, I remember I had one friend who he had, a a four foot tall mohawk that was bright red and the amount of Elmer's glue and egg whites and everything that he had to put in it to get it to stand up the way that it was supposed to. And he would have to shave his head every day, everywhere about the mohawk. So it looked clean, like very intentional, very effortful for this whole culture to look this way. And we were all judging each other by the way that our backpacks looked and all this other kind of stuff. Absolutely.
1: That's really, that's just so fascinating because from the outside looking at it, it seems very haphazard, but what you're describing is like, no, no, this is very intentional and lots of time and effort goes into this.
2: And I would say that that's the case for most aesthetically driven cultures, Mm -hmm. where if you're X tribe, if you're from the outside looking in, you don't see those little nuances and those little differences, you know, take for example, like, if you don't understand DC and politicians and politics Mm -hmm. and everything else like that, all you see is, okay, it's a bunch of guys in suits, Mm -hmm. but when you're in that world, you recognize the difference between the way that, people from you know senators from different parts of the country will wear their suits versus somebody who's an intern or somebody who's up on the hill or, or a lobbyist versus somebody who's and there are all these little nuances to the width of their lapels or how long their breaks are or if they've got pick stitching in it or all this other kind of stuff that from the outside looking in you're not aware of any of that but when you are on the inside all of that matters because those are very subtle signals as far as status and hierarchy and mastery and am I, I am part of this group or I'm not part of that group or I get this or I don't get that or anything else.
1: So what you're describing to me sounds like Neo in the Matrix, just speaking this whole other visual language yep. that you're the way that you're perceiving, perceiving dialogue through clothing on this way that is invisible to probably most of, most of the people outside these little sub-tribes.
2: Yeah. And I would say even from the average guy who's in not any particular tribe, but he works, you know, a regular white or a, or a blue collar job and he wears, we all get it on a subconscious level because when your buddy shows up at the bar this weekend and his pants are a little bit slimmer than what the rest of you are wearing, you tease each other about
1: it, mm-hmm.
2: you know, or he's wearing a button up shirt instead of a polo or a t-shirt. And it's like, what are you all dressed up for, dude? What do you, what do you think you're doing? Or those little changes We may not be totally fluent in that language, but we still speak a basic dialect and most of us get it on some sort of a subconscious level. And so what my job is, what I do is I teach guys to be able to speak that language very fluently and be able to learn how to use it irrespective of where they live or what they do for a living or what their hobbies are, how many kids they have or don't have or anything else like that.
1: Well, and that's where you've really helped me is you help break down this sort of nebulous, nebulous notion of style and fashion to some pretty, pretty uh, digestible little things like fit and color and skin good. tone. Well, that's what was really powerful for me. Like, oh, I would normally just wear like white and blue, and when you explained about skin tone looking good or bad, I was like, oh my gosh, it's like this big explosion in my mind of knowing like, oh my, I've been wearing the wrong color. Like, this is what I like, but what I like doesn't necessarily look good on me. Right. It doesn't communicate necessarily what I want it to. Right. And so you find, I mean, do you find that that process, how, do you find that process is effective for men just in general? Because I don't know that I've ever seen anyone break it down quite the same way that that you do.
2: Oh, yeah. Not only is it effective, but one of the things, especially the guys who go through my one-on-one coaching where we get to dive together really deep on it, mm-hmm. is the, the the same thing I hear over and over again, which I love it every time I hear it is, this is a... This is life coaching disguised as style coaching, mm-hmm. because all of those same principles, as far as understanding who your audience is, understanding what your own ambitions and aspirations are, understanding your strengths and weaknesses about your body or, or these other things that can be applicable with way more than just the clothes that you put on your body.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example of one client where um, you can keep them anonymous, obviously, but where you really felt this come into effect, like sort of paint a picture
2: yeah, I've got one guy um, who works in the tech industry, and he has a couple of different hobbies. You know, one of them is that he is a—he's uh, a skydiver. He's done hundreds of jumps, and he is also kind of a—I don't want to say conspicuous consumer, but he loves—he loves good luxury experiences. Mm-hmm. He likes dressing up. He loves being able to go to nice restaurants and go go to these kind of events. And dressing up and working in the tech industry are very antithetical. Yeah, I know. You know, those those two worlds don't jive very well at all. And so it was as we were going through this process and he was able to, to finally get rid of this dissonance of these multiple parts of who he is and feeling like these were mutually exclusive or they were combating and realizing that they're not. The way that they apply may be different where you don't. And it was really easy to help him realize it's like, dude, you don't wear your skydiving shoes when you go to work, right? And so you also shouldn't be wearing your nice dress shoes when you go to work. And just like you don't wear your work shoes when you go skydiving, you also don't wear your work stuff when you go to a nice restaurant. And that doesn't mean that these are conflicting parts of your personality because we always have to be dressed the same way or we always have to feel like we're the same person all the time, mm-hmm. but you're just kind of taking these different dials of your personality and in certain environments or with certain people, you bring one down a little bit and you crank another one up. You know, it's the same thing with my kids. I'm not a very goofy person. I just, I don't like being silly or goofy. I'm not very comfortable with that. My kids see it every single day. I'm a complete dork with my kids. Mm. And that doesn't mean that I'm being inauthentic when I'm on stage or when I'm working with my clients because I'm not being goofy with them the same way that I am with my kids, nor does it mean that I'm faking it with my children because there's that part of it in there, but it's the proper application for these behaviors or these mindsets or these approaches. And you do it with your clothing, you do it with your behavior, you do it with your language, you do it with everything else. You know, if you and I were on a show, And if you were running a show that was geared towards women, the conversation that we would be having, I could hit on the same principles, but I would be using different language. We could be talking about it differently. Or, you know, I go on a show. I remember uh, one that I was on this year. It was for it was for an older gentleman. And he is a his whole show is about uh, professional and college athletes and how they can improve their circumstances as far as getting on better teams and stuff like that. And that's a very different conversation than I have when I go on with somebody who is, you know, another one of the Manosphere guys or something else like that. And then again, that doesn't mean that the principles are different. It doesn't mean that I'm being inauthentic or incongruent. It just means that you turn certain things up or turn certain things down. And when I teach guys how to do that with their clothes, then in a lot of ways, it becomes very easy for them to do that with other skills as well.
1: Well, it sounds to me you're guiding men to their inner, their inner selves, their inner realities. As that's expressed particularly through clothing. And once they get a glimpse of that, they understand that, okay, I'm the same guy in all these different places, but I can express the same personhood in these different, in these different scenarios. But who is right. that person inside?
2: Yeah. And who do you not only who is he, but who are you building him to become? Because Mm. you don't want to just be stagnant in that authenticity. You want to be aspirational in it as well.
1: So does that really I see that playing in also with your archetypes of rugged, refined and rakish of really helping men understand how they orient themselves tribally, how they orient themselves in the world. That was a very interesting exercise for me to go through to find out that I'm actually rakish and refined when I would have identified as, you know, refined and rugged in some way. Uh-huh. But that was that was like, oh, wow, actually, that's right, because you had really hit on some unique some unique things. So I'm, I've been curious about th- those three archetypes. Like Where did those come from? How did you develop those? It's like was an aha moment kind of thing.
2: Kind of, um, this was back when I was still writing for the site, mostly as, as, uh, putting out articles and stuff like that. And I remember. Um, I had gone through a series that I had created about danger and play. You know, I, I'm friends with Mike Cernovich and back before he was Cernovich, he was writing a blog called Dangered Play and he's talking about these different aspects. And I realized that we see this a lot in clothing where you have men who look for a certain aesthetic that implies more danger and it's more Mm -hmm. physically aggressive and assertive. And then you also have guys with an aesthetic that's a little bit more playful. And in a lot of ways, it's more indirectly powerful because, you know, you take like, 15th century French aristocracy and how it's the silk and the slippers and the wigs and the makeup and everything else like that because they were they were so powerful that they never had to get their hands dirty Mm -hmm. you know some men look at the calluses on their hands as this is a sign of masculinity because i can use my hands and i get in and i get rough and i get dirty and in other cultures they see that as very crass and low class and anything else and so a sign of your power and your masculinity is the fact that you have very smooth hands because you can you can afford to have other people do that for you Mm -hmm. right and so it was kind of the dichotomy of those two. And then as I was writing that and and responding to commenters on that and fleshing those ideas out more, I realized that it was incomplete. And then that's when it started to lean into these three different archetypes that I was then able to kind of flesh out and have found that they really, they do, they resonate with people because I I didn't create them. I just kind of discovered them, which is how, mm-hmm. you know, same thing with like the warrior, magician, king, lover archetypes, mm-hmm. like that's not an invention. We resonate with stuff like that because we recognize that there's truth in it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's a creative discernment. It's, you know, to say it's this and not that, and then to apply it to the world of fashion in particular, mm-hmm. because the king, warrior, magician, that's how these things live inside inside of us as men. And there's been a lot of discussion about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a good man over the centuries and, you know, going all the way back to, you know, Aristotle and guys like that, a lot of that reflection around, but I haven't found thousands of years of reflection on how it applies to fashion. No. <laughs> well, know, that's pretty and, cool,
2: right? Right. And it's fun because it happens. You know, men have always cared about our appearance. It's something that we've talked about and we've been concerned about. The fact that, you know, you look at men like George Washington and mm. he was not only very fashion conscious, but he was he was willing to create his own stuff where imagine walking mm. into a a store today and saying, you know, I, I want my collar to be inverted and I want there to be buttons up on the, up on the shoulders or being the guy who invented epaulettes or something. That's what Washington would do is one, he could get away with it because he was high status enough that he could set standards. You know, some, some average loan officer at a credit union can't set global trends, but Washington was high status enough that he could. And two, he was very intentional about it where he knew what he wanted things to symbolize and to represent and stuff like that and how he wanted it to work based on his body and proportions and all this other kind of stuff and men have always been concerned about this some of them have, are more conscious like Washington and more mm-hmm. deliberate others are you know something is as, as simple as I'm gonna wear a belt of scalps to be able to demonstrate to my enemies how many other men I've taken and conquered and it's mm-hmm. a very visceral and kind of a raw thing but it's still a, a concern for appearance
1: well, you do this series, Real Men Don't Care What They Look Like, sort of the satirical, satirical poke at that, at that idea. And it, it, it you've done so many of them. I'm probably hundreds at this point. So what mm-hmm. have you learned? What have you learned from that in looking at men's fashion's not even the word, it's style of appearance, right. pro, you know, portrayal over, I mean, eons essentially, right? The
2: biggest and most surprising takeaway for me thus far has been that nobody cares about appearance more than the warrior class. Mm. I always expected, and and we think about that now, and part of that is because you've got, when we think of our modern warrior class, it's uniforms, it's stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, and yes, there's still a concern for that because of the fact that uniforms have been issued and they get updated, that is a concern for appearance. But when you think about kind of manly men and the way that we think about physical raw masculinity today, you don't really see veterans or warriors or men like that, other than when they're in uniform, really being that conscious about how they dress. Mm-hmm. But historically, absolutely. These are the men who you get the the winged hussars or you get the Jaguar and the Eagle warriors of the Aztecs, or you get all of these different subcultures, And it happens all over the world and at all different points in history that the men who were the most gaudy and the most, Flamboyant isn't the right word, but the most attention-seeking with their appearance were always the ones who could afford to have you pay attention to them because they were the most they were the most capable of killing you and handling that attention.
1: Well, they had earned honor in battle, and in a way that we don't, I think, relate to these days with you know killing from a distance. Right. It was a different thing to be able to walk up to a man with a sword or a spear and and have that sort feel of
2: feel it into his chest and feel that and everything and know that he could have done the same thing to you. And yeah, there was there was honor in that, and that's where. All of these different concern, there's there's so much concern for aesthetics and it, and so much of it does have to do with signaling rank or accomplishment or anything. you know, there are certain Native American tribes that even the feathers that you would wear based on the colors that they were dyed or the ways that they were broken or things like that, it was, it was representative of the different uh, feats and accomplishments that you'd had in battle.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a number of tattoos on on my arms, and those are my trophies. Like those are uh-huh. just sentimental things. Like I earned those t- those those tattoos for, over, for things yep. I overcome. And Perfect one of the example, things, yeah, one of the things I did recently is I really wanted to own a, a Spartan helmet, like an actual Spartan uh-huh. helmet, like obviously not from ancient Greece. But so I went to Etsy, and on Etsy there are all these people that refashion old ancient, you know, war, war armor. And to see all these different styles that warriors used to present themselves in was a real education. Of course, there's no, there's no no models. It's just to look at the, what did this communicate? This plume going this way, or this face looking that way.
2: Yep. And the fact that they took pride in being able to wear those things, Mm -hmm. that it was part of your identity. It was part of that cohesion of, I am a Spartan. I'm not an Athenian or I'm not a Thracian or I'm not a Cretian or something else. I'm a Spartan. And one of the ways that you can tell the difference is the way that my helmet is shaped versus the way that your helmet is shaped. And I wouldn't be caught dead wearing one of yours because I'm not one of you. I am me and I'm part of this us. And there's real real power and stuff like that.
1: How do you think men can bring some of those warrior ideals? Obviously, we're not running around with spears. Thank goodness. But how, how can men bring some of that into their day to day life and appearance? That warrior honor, I think, which many men are looking for?
2: I think that a lot of it really does come down to how intentional are you being with your appearance? Because one of the things that's really cool about this is just like you mentioned with your tattoos, your clothing can be certain trophies. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be things where for a lot of men, it's and this is why the tradition started of, you know, you're with the company for 20 years and they get you a watch or stuff like that. But it's because you can look at the things that you have on and realize that it sends certain signals. Um, and those those may be things that are very personally established. You know, I've got a ring that has uh, some religious significance that I think about every time that I look at it, or it may be something that's more generally and culturally established where you wear a white lab coat, And it's a doctor's coat and you're convinced that it's a doctor's coat. And then you convince you, you go through this placebo effect of being able to feel like I am more authoritative and more intelligent and more credible and stuff. And so it does actually, they've done studies on this and it, it does lead to higher test scores and that kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, people wearing the same coat and thinking it's a painter's smock and then the test scores are very different. And so some of it may be. Personal, some of it may be more tribal, some of it may be a little bit more universal, but start thinking about those kinds of things and what are the kind of signals that you want to reinforce yourself, which means you have to do that deep dive of what are the virtues that I want to be able to cultivate. Because for some men, maybe it is that I'm assertive and I'm aggressive and I'm dignified. And for others, it may be that I'm friendly and I'm encouraging or validating. And you need to think about What are things that you can wear that send those signals to you or what are things that you can wear that send those signals to other people?
1: And I like how you bring that into your own life. Like this question of intentionality shows up in everything that you've been saying today with how you approach your family, how you approach your your dress, how you approach your business, how you approach looking at the way that that other men dress, just how vital intentionality is these days, including to showing, showing up as a father as we started the conversation to say, no, I'm going to find another gear and I'm going to be intentional about this in all the modes of that I express myself in.
2: Yeah, it was, you know, this is the subject of my last 21 conference and my mass, my last um, influential speech, both of them were subjects over objects, which basically mm-hmm. in a sentence you have the subject, which is the thing that is doing the action or the object, which is the thing that is being acted upon and i believe that as men we have a moral obligation in as much as we are capable of to be subjects rather than objects we're supposed to be mm-hmm. doing things we're supposed to be active we're supposed to be being intentional as opposed to just being objects that are acted upon whether that's by our children or our spouses or our bosses or by society in general or anything else and one of the easiest ways to be able to do that is with your clothing mm-hmm. because do you just wear what your wife buys you or what you've always worn because that was what was picked for you based on your peer group and high school and in college, or this is the only stuff that fits me at the one store that I'm comfortable walking into or anything else. It's a very passive approach to your appearance as opposed to something that's much more active and intentional, which is what are the signals that I want to send Mm -hmm. to myself and other
1: people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've allowed yourself to be in a sense, objectified it as in made into an object to be painted upon instead of painting, instead of painting yourself in a specific way. Absolutely. And do you think also that there's there's some need for uh, this is a bad word today to say objectify but I think in some ways men do need to objectify obviously not women in a way to de- in a way that dehumanizes them but to in a way to objectify the objects in their life and to say this is separate from me and who yes. am I separate from my things
2: Yes yeah I know I think that that's a good point because the that's the irony of it is that you get these guys who will say things like, well, I don't care how I look or anything else like that. But then if you try and get them to dress in a way that's different than what their comfort zone is, then they won't do it or they feel very self-conscious about it because they have internalized that I am t-shirt and cargo shorts or that I am a polo and a pair of khakis or that I am a three piece suits and a fedora. And so they, they make their identity A, they make their clothing the root of the identity as opposed to making the identity what it is and realizing that this particular way of dressing can reflect that but there's also a dozen other different ways of dressing that can reflect it just as well and then that's when it can become that's when your clothing can become an object as opposed to you being an object for your clothing Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. have you had to coach men through that i don't care what i look okay how how does that go i mean that sounds excruciatingly difficult in a way but also what a transformation
2: Well, and it's fun because, you know, I would love to be able to do it with somebody. The reality is, is somebody who's going to pay me what I charge to work with me one-on-one, they're already at the point where they Mm -hmm. recognize that they care about how they look. Mm -hmm. But when I do have conversations with people, um, on Twitter or in other groups or anything, my favorite is, you know, you just, you just get them to, okay, if you really don't care, just throw away everything that you have and wear what your wife has in her closet. Or go throw on a Nazi uniform and wear that all day, every day for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life and tell me that that doesn't affect the way that you live. Or, you know, a pink gorilla suit or a trash bag or a million different things. Go dress in your kids' Halloween costumes. You think that you don't care, but what really you're you're signaling is that the way that I is appropriate for me to care is to look like I don't care.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: My uniform is apathy. And if I look like I'm doing anything other than apathy, then I'm not actually comfortable with what I'm wearing. Therefore, you you care because you're being apathetic, but you're not really being apathetic. That's just the signal you're trying to send yourself and everybody else.
1: Is it yes? Is it apathy, and is it also I think partially hiding? Like I'm afraid oh, totally. to yeah. Okay, I'm afraid to acknowledge totally. who I really am by putting on clothes that expresses because then I'm I'm vulnerable.
2: Right. No, I did a whole thread on this that that pissed off a lot of people about how one of the main reasons that guys do that is because it's it's shame.
1: Okay. Amazing.
2: It's, it, it really is. It's the fact that you were trying to hide and, and maybe it's shame from when you were, you know, 12 years old and you hadn't hit puberty yet and everybody else did. And so you're wearing a large t-shirt trying to convince yourself that it fits on you when it really doesn't. And so you get used to wearing stuff that's too baggy all the time, or maybe it's shame that your dad who was emotionally distant made fun of you because something fit a certain way or you wore a certain color and it looked girly on you or something else like that. And so there's no way you're ever going to touch that again because you're reliving all of that. And again, a lot of this is very subconscious, but so much of it is not true apathy. It's fear and shame. And we're hiding from, from these deep seated associations with our appearance and our emotions and our relations and everything else.
1: That's so great that you made that connection. I mean, I, I don't think that I've ever heard or read anyone else really make the connection between shame and trauma and, and fashion and appearance. And obviously, this is a huge topic They can spend years or even a lifetime exploring just how powerful that is in, in everybody, but how powerful that is in men. But to to recognize that, no, this shows up in the way you choose to present yourself clothing wise, like in, in, in your, the way that you're suppressing or hiding from yourself or avoiding or avoiding something. I mean, you, have, you must have to work through that with men to some mm-hmm. extent, sort of a therapist in a way.
2: Yeah, in a lot of ways. And it's kind of fun because I never... I never get to that point. I I never try to do it early on because it's hard Mm -hmm. and most men do end up getting there themselves. And it's fun when they can finally break through because what they really do is when they learn how to do all this, they give themselves permission to stop dressing like the worst version of themselves that they think they deserve and start dressing like the best version of themselves that they feel like they can actually aspire to become. And that's a, that's a huge mindset shift.
1: You talked earlier about uh, the, the gentleman you were coaching in the, in the tech industry who did skydiving. Did you walk him through that process?
2: Not as much because he's done, he's, he's experimented enough with everything on his own that for him, a lot of it had more to do with, just the getting the congruence right and getting a lot of the technical skills there. But I do, especially at what I found is that a lot of the guys that I deal with this the most are blue-collar business owners mm-hmm. because they recognize that they have to care about the way that they dress because they can't look too white collar or their, their staff won't, won't trust them to be, or they do actually have to like get down and do the job and they don't want to ruin their clothes. But they also can't just dress like a regular laborer because then they lose credibility with investors and contractors and, you know, politicians and everybody else that they're working with all the time. And so these guys are kind of forced into the realization that they have to exist between these two different worlds. And a lot of my guys who are this way kind of come in begrudgingly where it's like, I don't want to have to think about this. I really wish that I didn't have to care about it, but I recognize that I do. So please just teach me how to get this right. And for a lot of them, when they get halfway through, they're just like, holy crap, this is very different than what I expected it to be.
1: I can just picture the light in their eyes as they're really getting like, this is Uh something really meaningful that I can have fun with.
2: Yeah. And it's not threatening and it's not prissy. And it's not something that I have to hide from my wife or my kids or my buddies or anything else like that. It's something that I, I, it is, it's like, it's like going your whole life without recognizing that you have uh, your left hand. And so you just try and do everything with your right hand and you can, you could do just fine. You get, you get Mm -hmm. along great. And then you realize you've got this whole other thing and it's just like,
1: I could do so much more than I ever thought I could, and there's nothing wrong with learning how to use this. It's really eye-opening for a lot of men. And you just see them probably go tearing off into the world mm-hmm. with that, like, "Oh my gosh!" Well, I mean, that was my experience when I went shopping a couple of weeks ago. I walked into Nordstrom and I'm looking around and I was like, "Wow, this is so much fun trying all this on all this stuff." And like, no, that wouldn't look good on me. Does this is look good on me. And actually, having the tools to look in the mirror and make a real critical evaluation, recognizing yep. this whole new world has opened up to me in terms of like what I can wear and how I can represent myself. Yep. And you, you, mean you see this all the time, I'm sure.
2: I love it. And it never gets old. That aha moment never gets old.
1: That's really, I mean, I, w- I wish people could see the smile on your face right now <laughs> that, that you're, you're reflecting that. I mean, it's a, it's a very warm smile. And, and we, what, it come, what, what it brings to mind is this other subtler notion of being a patriarch. We talked about family and work, but there's also, and of course, kids as well. But then passing along what you know to other men you know, who aren't necessarily in your family, or but who are in your, I guess, your world. I guess we live, we don't live we live in tribes in the same way they live in our mm-hmm. world that we share, getting to pass that on. So to speak a little bit to that, because that seems like such a profound gift to have completed a form of transformation and then to be able to share it with other men.
2: Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about being involved in this corner of the internet is that we recognize how important male friendship, camaraderie, bonding, and everything else is. And I'm very grateful that I have a number of different pockets of men that I get to call friends. And some of them are online people that I only see once a year when we do conferences. And it's just, I mean, for me to go to 21, the, the presentations are work. Like, I don't necessarily look forward to that. It's getting to hang out with all my, all my Twitter friends and spend a whole week with them that I get really jazzed about and energized about. And same thing. I've got guys in my neighborhood that I go to church with at three days a week, they come over and and lift, you know, we get Mm -hmm. to do that together. I've got another group of guys that twice a month we get together and we do stuff. Uh, you know, last time we went to the batting cages and they're coming over tonight, we're going to watch the debate and joke about it and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And, but, The, the, and this is another one of these things that I want my, I want my kids to understand. I want my daughters to be able to support this with their husbands and do it themselves. I want my son to be able to do it this way is the importance of these homosocial relationships. Because I think one of the sad things that, that we experience a lot, and we certainly experience a lot within Christian culture in general is the idea that in order to be a good man, you, all of your relationship needs and desires and ambitions and drives need to be poured into your spouse and your children.
1: Mm.
2: And obviously they're top priority as they Mm -hmm, should be mm -hmm. right. They absolutely should be. And I think I, I see hanging out with my friends as, uh, Abraham Lincoln. I think it was Lincoln who talked about, you know, if you gave me five hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend the first three hours sharpening the ax. Mm -hmm. And I see, Men spending time with other men is that it's sharpening your ax. And this is how my friends have been able to, their wives recognize this now and they recognize it in themselves where, yeah, it does take away time from your wife and your kids to come over and lift in the mornings or to go out and go do wings and go throw axes uh, twice a month or something else like that. That is time that you could be spending with your spouse or with your children. But when you come do that and you do that with your friends and you engage with men in a way that you can't engage with your wife, you can't engage with your children, then you are charged and energized. And so you are better. The quality of what you're putting out as a father and as a husband, as uh, in work and every other regard is infinitely better. And so would you rather as a spouse get 60% of your husband, 100% of the time, or get 90% of him, 90% of the time. Like that's an easy trade, right? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. for both men and for our families and everybody else, it's so important to be able to have those male friendships and those uh, environments in which you push each other, you challenge each other, you support each other, you do all these other things that, that to a very small extent. And I do, I, when I read, part of me still just hurts for this. The love and brotherhood and camaraderie that men in platoons have for each other, or in or in SEAL teams, or even fire departments, or stuff like that, where, and that's why men form gangs. You know, that's why mm-hmm. we form tribes. That's why we have all this other stuff. And and, I get a, just a shadow of that, and what it does for me as far as an energizing factor is wonderful. And and I can't wait to figure out how to make it even bigger and better than what it currently
1: is. You're talking about giving yourself. And by giving of yourself to yourself, you have more paradoxically to give to others around you. Like, right. How does that, there's some magic in that, right?
2: There, there really is. There, there really is. And and a lot of people will chafe at that because they'll see it as being selfish. But when you give yourself to other men and they're men that you can trust and you allow yourself to be able to, I mean, when I think about the amount of time that I put into triathlon training and, or, or boxing or things like that, like it is, it's time that comes At the expense of time that I spend with my family, but it makes me better. And so whether it's your physical health or your social health or your mental health or your spiritual health or anything else like that, there does need to be some level of self-cultivation, even if the motivation is purely so that you can be better in your responsibilities as a husband and a father. But if you're always just doing the thing instead of preparing to do the thing, you're not going to be as good at the thing.
1: Well, you're bringing yourself alive. You're just doing these things that they bring you to life that remind you the why of living. And then you come back with that energy and that life into your home environment. Exactly. That's incredible. I I just have, I just have one more question then. Um, So travel back in time to that morning when you put on that suit to go to your, to go to your job that we talked about when you made that decision to the man you are today. So sort of put those two men together in a room together, the Tanner that you were then, the Tanner that you are now what do they have to say to each other?
2: Oh, that's a hard one. Cause you know, I even, I especially think about that even if I could go back and talk to like the 15 year old version of me, this angsty little punk rock emo kid. And what would, what would I even hear myself say mm. or anything else like that? But the, when I think back to that guy in the suit, especially because I remember the first time I did it, I was feeling self-conscious, you know, because it is you're dressed up more than everybody else. And a lot of guys that I work with feel this way where it's, you think everybody's going to be hyper aware of the fact that you're changing or that you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone or anything else like that. And I think the, the major thing that I would want to be able to express is that that discomfort is indicative of the fact that you have changed and that you are on your way to being somebody who's worth respecting. And you're on your way to being the kind of person who is capable of doing the things you always wanted to do, but you've never actually tried to do. And so I think it would be helping myself realize that this, this is you getting on the right track finally.
1: Amen to that. Thank you very much for that. I mean, I can yeah. I can picture that absolute moment where it's you're essentially telling the journey of masculinity to this younger version. This is the journey that you're setting out on in making this decision, this hard decision in the hardest of circumstances. This is the man you're setting up yourself to be. Yep. That's it. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah. Where can uh, people learn more about you and what you do?
2: So I am most active, like you said, on both Twitter and Instagram. So those are at Tanner which is T-A-N-N-E-R-G-U-Z-Y. So go follow me on those. And then if you want to learn more about specifically the style stuff or anything else like that, you can go to masculine-style.com.
1: And I, I'm in your masculine style group, and it's a fantastic group to be a part of. That I'm learning. No, I a love lot. having
2: you in there. It's fun to see your progress, and and it's. Uh, I'm glad we got to do this today. I am too. Thank you so
1: much, and I'm Thanks looking well. forward to meeting you at the 21 Convention.
2: Yeah, man, it's gonna be a great weekend.
1: It's gonna be awesome. Thanks a lot.
2: Thank you.